0: Welcome to the Women of TBC Podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit timblebiblechurch.org. Good morning, everyone, welcome. I invite everybody to come on in and sit down. I'm so thankful for those of you who, who braved the weather and came together, it's so good to be together. And it's really good for our speaker today to be able to look out into into your eyes as she shares what God has put on her heart. So we're going to jump right into our our lecture today. I want to introduce to you Courtney Tate. Uh, Her husband is Dave Tate, one of our pastors here, high school pastor and on our teaching team. And Courtney um, is just a wonderful friend, a brilliant thinker. And teacher, and so I'm just so excited for you to get to hear her today. So let's, let's pray for Courtney, and then we're going to worship at the end of our time together today. So let's pray. God, we just glorify your name. We thank you so much for the beauty that we see around us today, for just your goodness and your kindness and protecting us and, and just seeing us through this storm. God, we give you all glory and honor and praise Would you speak to us this morning? Would you use Courtney to share what you have put on her heart with us? God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand what you have for us in this amazing chapter in your word? Um, Just help us, and we give you all thanks and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I can't believe there are this many people here. (laughs) I literally thought I was going to talk to five people, and I was like, it's better than filming to an empty room. So... Glad you guys are here. If I were picking a team, y'all would be the team I pick. Y'all are like varsity, right? <laughs> Just kidding. We're talking about the gospel today. That's totally anti-gospel. So um, <laughs> so it's good to be here this morning. Um, in 2006, Dave and I went with Pastor Gary to Rwanda for a pastor's conference. And I knew that Rwanda had experienced a genocide about a decade prior. So I wanted to read and kind of understand more of what happened there. Um, So in 1994, a plane carrying the Rwandan president was shot down. The president was a Hutu, one of the two ethnic tribes in Rwanda. The other tribe was Tutsi. And after the president's assassination, violence erupted, and Hutus began to systematically kill Tutsis. And over the next 100 days, 200,000 Tutsi, Hutus, sorry would go on to kill 800,000 Tutsis. So normal people were handed machetes in order to murder their neighbors, their friends and even relatives. They were promised land food, and money if they were willing to murder Tootsies. And so the more I learned, the more I was consumed with the question of how do normal people who got along with their neighbors and loved their family and friends could suddenly turn on them and begin killing them. And I found myself saying the statements that we can tend to say when we're airdropped into some sort of horrific situation. Well, I wouldn't take up the machete I could never do that. I mean, I would never murder my neighbor. And one day I read a particular account that began to help me understand how very wrong I was. Because many times Hutus were ordered to murder Tutsis to avoid their own wife, children, or parents being killed. So imagine Someone holding a machete to your family, parents, or friends, and saying, if you don't kill this person, I'm going to murder them. And I began to see how all of us, if we lived in a particular country at a particular time period, or were put in a particular moral dilemma, could be capable of this. And in fact, this is what every researcher of genocide has found Christopher Browning says, We are left then with the most uncomfortable of realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult for us to admit, to understand, and absorb because as we look at the perpetrators of genocide, we don't need to ask who they are because we know who they are. They are you and I. Now, rather than this disprove Christianity, It actually affirms Christian truth. Because in Romans 3, 9, we read today, For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Clay Jones states it best when he says, We are all born Auschwitz-enabled. This is called the total depravity of man. And you might wonder why are we discussing the total depravity when the whole book of Romans is about the gospel and God's grace. Well, there's this upside-down theme that we see throughout the Bible. In order to be great, we must die. In order to be first, we must be last. And what we're going to see today in chapter 3 is that in order to experience fullness, we must realize our emptiness. This truth isn't meant to crush us, though but to lead us to fall at the feet of Jesus because the rest of Romans we're going to find is not going to be beautiful to us if we don't understand that we enter through the door of sorrow to get to joy. Now, in my precept study, total depravity is stated like this. The total depravity of man doesn't mean man is as low as, as horrible or as bad as he can be, but rather man is as lost as he can be as without hope as he can be, as condemned as he can be, totally unable to save himself, and at war against God in his heart. Now, if we're honest, this is not something that any of us like to hear. In today's age of self-esteem and empowerment, none of us like the idea of viewing ourselves like this. Because we tend to think of righteousness in ways that suit us and meet earthly standards. But the standard of righteousness in God's eyes is the commandment Jesus gives in Luke 10, 27. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we take this command and we overlay it against Romans 3, we see that none of us are righteous. Paul is saying none of us are righteous enough to deserve salvation. Now, that does not mean that humans don't do good things on earth, even as unbelievers. We still bear the image of the one who made us. But without faith in God, these good works are not done consistently or habitually, and they're not done from a heart that wants God to get the glory. So, in verse 18, Paul explains why we are in this state of total depravity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, the law can't fix this problem of not fearing God because it was never meant to deliver us. Instead, the law's like an MRI that shows us the cancer destroying us. That's why in verse 20 it tells us, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now the Greek word for knowledge here is epignosis. This means to have an intimate understanding of something. We're not to have a superficial understanding that we're sinful, but a deep one. And many of us carry faulty ideas of sin to begin with, and one is that we think of sin in terms of actions only, and usually it's particular actions we're thinking about, right? We tend to assess our sinfulness by comparing ourselves to others, and because we haven't done those particular actions, we don't really see ourselves as sinners, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can be innocent of all gross sins and yet be guilty of this terrible thing, of being satisfied with your life, of having pride in your achievements, and of looking down on others and feeling that you are better than them. There's nothing worse because you are saying that somehow you are nearer to God than they are, and yet you are not. And our own statements indict us on this. Are you someone that says, I have a boring testimony, or I've always followed God, or I was raised in a Christian family? This is what the Pharisees did. They saw faith as something that you kind of enter into by heritage rather than because you're broken and in need. And this is one of the very problems Paul's trying to correct in the church at Rome. In chapter 1, he addressed the sin of the Gentile. In chapter 2, he addresses the sin of the Jew. And now in chapter 3, he's kind of gathering them all together and going, Hey, church, you cannot get arrogant. None of us are above the other. All of us have been delivered from sin. And this was a story for John Wesley, one of the great church revivalists. He was on a boat traveling from England to the New World when they hit a storm at sea. And he was a young minister. He was going to be a pastor to the British colonists in Savannah, Georgia. And during the storm, Wesley began to fear for his life. Then he looked over and he noticed a group of German Protestants who were just on their way to preach to the Native Americans, and they weren't the least bit afraid. They just sat there calmly singing hymns. And later when they landed, Wesley approached them and said, "'Why were you so calm during the storm?' And they simply responded with a question, "'Do you have faith in Christ?' And Wesley stated that he did, but he later wrote in his journal, "'I fear that these were but vain words.'" This whole experience left him very confused, but it sent him on a season of soul-searching, which led to one of the most famous conversions in church history— Because what he realized was that he was afraid to die. And he didn't know God like these people. And this led him to feel this deep sense of need in his life. And conviction of sin begins with our need for God. But how does a sinner become a saint? How can we acknowledge this reality of sinfulness without being crushed by it? Well, Romans 3 21 through 25 are some of the most prolific verses in all of the Bible. This is what Paul has been building towards all this time. And he begins, begins his opening statement with, But now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Now that's a lot to take in and understand. But what he's saying here is this is the way, the only way to God through Jesus, through his grace given to us as a gift. This is the good news. And yes, It does begin with bad news. We are separated from God. We are broken. We cannot fix this fact. We cannot save ourselves. But now, here is the righteousness of God. His son, Jesus, he was the one that had perfect obedience, perfect honor and loyalty to God. And he left all the riches and splendor of heaven to take on flesh and become fully human while remaining fully God. Jesus was the only one who could ever keep God's law totally and completely without one failure. And so the reason our sinfulness shouldn't crush us when we come to God or as we grow in the Lord is because God saw every inch of our sinfulness, and he didn't leave us in it. Jesus was drawn towards us in our sin. He is not appalled by us. He sent his son to provide a way of escape. But this truth is not going to be beautiful if we don't see the sin in our soul that Jesus is actually saving us from. So before we can be made right and have peace with God, this penalty of sin must be removed. Sin cannot be un- go unpunished. It has to be dealt with. So how did God choose to do this? What did God put in place to deal with sin? Well, the first concept that Paul mentions is salvation involves being justified by his grace as a gift. This is the doctrine of justification or what's called the great exchange. And that means that on the cross, Jesus took on the death and the sin that we deserved, but then he gave us his righteousness that we do not deserve. A story I read that depicts this idea is the case of a deaf couple who were behind on their rent by $250. They'd actually married hoping to save money, but they didn't realize that it would mean a drop in their disability benefits. So rather than the landlord be, excuse me, being willing to reach a compromise, he took the couple to court. And after the judge listened to each side present the arguments, he suddenly got up and left the courtroom, only to return and hand the landlord's attorney $200 bills and $150 bill. Consider it paid, he told the lawyer. The funds were credited from the just to the unjust, The debt was paid in full, and the case was dismissed. See, the law had been satisfied, and the deaf couple were now considered righteous in the eyes of the court. This is what God does for us when he justifies us. And the second thing Paul mentions in verse 25 is that God himself put his son forward as a propitiation. Now, this word means averting the wrath of God By the offering of a gift. So God made His own Son responsible for our sins. They were placed on Jesus instead. And when Jesus said on the cross, It is finished, it meant that God's anger at sin has now been satisfied for those who place faith in Jesus. And so something that I learned from this chapter I didn't know about was that the word propitiation is used 20 times in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat, which was the golden cover on the Ark of the Covenant. So this was a place where the glory and presence of God would be manifested on the Day of Atonement, and two goats would be brought to the high priest, and one would be sacrificed, And its blood would be sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat to signify the completeness of the blood to satisfy God's anger against Israel's sin. And then the priest would take the second goat and he would lay hands on it. And this was to signify the sins of Israel being transferred to this goat. This is where we get the word scapegoat from. So instead of this goat dying, though, It would be taken out into the wilderness and released and set free. So when Paul says in verse 25 that God put Jesus forward to be a mercy seat or propitiation, he is saying that the glory and presence of God was displayed that day on the cross when his son's blood was running down it. And though all of us as believers are guilty, we are like the goat, burdened with sin, yet set free. So when we begin to understand all that Paul is trying to convey in these four verses, his next statement in verse 27 is pretty understandable. What becomes of our boasting? How can we claim or try to claim any part in all that Jesus has achieved for us? I mean, can we actually look at this plan of salvation and insert our role anywhere in it, or do we simply rejoice over what Jesus accomplished in our place? Romans 3 lays it out very clearly that when we understand the depths of our sin, we begin to understand the depths of his grace. So in 1995, Newsweek published an essay called Whatever Happened to Sin, written by Kenneth Woodward. And in it, he discusses how the age-old account of Adam and Eve is all but gone out of style in our culture. Who identifies with Adam and Eve these days? Although many people occasionally experience shame, loss of face, guilt requires much more. A recognition of of sin and the need to change one's life. 90% of Americans say they believe in God, yet the urgent sense of personal sin has all but disappeared in the current upbeat style in American religion. So often we run from this. We try to hide our sin. We don't speak openly about our struggle with it. We only talk about it in kind of general, vague ways. We don't give details because we believe it will make us feel worthless, defective, and condemned. But the big picture message here in Romans 3 is that when we get specific and honest with the Lord about our sin throughout our life, we deepen in our joy that Jesus loves and saves sinners. And when the Bible speaks of us experiencing joy in our salvation, it's through this way of mourning our sin But this way is so contrary to how we naturally think. And as I was preparing my talk, I was so structured by how Romans is structured, with the first three chapters kind of being the bad news first, before launching into the heart of the gospel message. I saw this pattern at work in my life when God first saved me back in college, but this continues to play out as the Lord purifies my faith. And I saw this to be true when I went to Israel this past summer. So I hate to admit this, but when Dave and I first found out that when it was our turn to to go to Israel as co-leaders, we actually were kind of struggling. And it wasn't because we didn't want to go to Israel, because we did, and it wasn't that we weren't thankful for the trip of a lifetime, but we had both kind of mutually decided on our own that we never wanted to be away from our kids internationally. We haven't been away from them for more than a week domestically, and we were going to be across the world for 12 days. For some of you at your point in motherhood, that sounds really nice. I understand. I understand. It changes. So we get there, and it's a whirlwind of a trip. I mean, we're getting up at like 5:30, 6 every morning. Um, We're going all day into the late evening. Your brain's about to explode with all the information that you're taking in. So I was kind of able to set missing my kids aside. But about two to three days before we left, I really started missing them, and I just wanted to be home. And then I find out I have COVID the morning that we're set to leave at midnight. And two other women in our group tested positive that morning. Ten people in our group actually ended up getting it. So I really wrestled to share the story because I I am fully aware that if I was out there and I heard this, I would be like, what's the big deal? You got another seven days of vacation in Jerusalem. Like, that sounds pretty nice to me. But at first, just wait, (laughs) the travel agency lady presented my quarantine to me as having to stay behind by myself because if Dave stayed with me, then he risked getting COVID and his quarantine would not start until the day that he tested positive. So they were trying to get me a quarantine stay at some retreat center in the Judean countryside, which I know, sounds nice, until they let you know that you won't be able to leave your hotel room, and you'll only have two meals brought to your door. And I'm like, "Um, what about the third meal? I'm kind of a girl that eats three meals a day. Like, that's kind of how I tend to roll. So... The Jewish holiday of Pentecost was about to start that day at four. It would continue for the next three days, which meant that everything, and I mean everything in the Jewish sections, would be closed. (laughs) And just to set the stage for this melodrama, some fun facts about me and aging are that I've developed some issues with gluten, with dairy, so I usually need access to grocery stores and cooking um, when I travel. And also, I've begun to experience some bouts of claustrophobia. Anybody out here have claustrophobia? Oh God, now I feel super alone. Um, My dad has it. We used to make fun of him for it when we were little. Now I have it. So the main way this kind of shows up for me is when I stay in like really small cramped hotel rooms. So I like kind of roomy spaces to be able to get out. So I'm on this rooftop hotel in Jerusalem early in the morning with some random healthcare worker watching me cry like a baby. My chest is tightening up. I feel like I can't breathe. I don't know if that's anxiety or a COVID symptom. And all I can picture at this point is being all alone without my husband, forbidden to leave a country, not being able to see my kids for another seven days. That's if I can get a flight. I can't leave my room. Everything is closed. And I'm at the mercy of what food they prepare for me. And this vision begins to form in my mind of me rocking back and forth on the hotel floor, babbling to myself and writing notches on the wall of each day that I'm stuck there. (laughs) I felt trapped and like I could not escape, and I began to spiral. I called Sharon Morris, bawling my eyes out. Scared like a little kid, I called Amy one night walking the streets of Jerusalem, and both of them had all the right notes of empathy. I'd be feeling the same way if I were in your shoes. But then Amy did say to me at one point, this will be good for you. (laughs) And I was like, what's that supposed to mean? (laughs) And so I was caught in this crossfire where I saw how I was reacting, which was, I have got to fix this. I need to get control. It's up to me alone to preserve myself. And then the other part of me realizing, wow, you really have no faith that God is going to take care of you. Don't you trust him? Are you going to submit to his plans? And that night, We watched our team walk out of the hotel to get on the bus. And yes, I was watching you from the window because I couldn't sleep that night. And it's the weirdest feeling when you watch the people that you've been with for 12 days just leave the country without you. And I began to finally pray and confess my little faith and ask God to forgive me. And say, I trust you to take care of me, whatever your will is for me. And so Dave decided to ignore what the travel agency was telling us. And he stayed with me, knowing that it would mean him most likely staying back by himself longer. And he got COVID the next day. And we were able miraculously to find an Airbnb that was actually cheaper than what our travel agency was going to get us. It was close to everything we needed and allowed us to check in on Shabbat, which is unbelievable. And when a jeweler that had sold our group several pieces of jewelry was delivering them to the hotel and found out we had COVID, he just said, I'll send my driver to take you to your rental and take you to get groceries. And then he ended up buying all our groceries. And there were many other times and hurdles where I had to stop myself and say, God, I trust you with this. It may not go the way I want, but I know you are good and that you will provide. So good news was, I did get back. And here's a picture of when I first saw my daughter. My friend, Katie, took this without me knowing. And then another sweet friend saw the picture and printed it out for me. So it's very sweet. So many people in this church picked up my kids, watched them at Impact Camp, stayed with them at our house, got cat food for me, got, uh, fed our gecko. Um, <laughs> I, I had to put that in there. <laughs> Someone really did do that. <laughs> um, I've never been put in a situation where I had, been, I had to be so dependent on help. And honestly, I, I hated it. Because it felt like every internal sin of pride and self-reliance was being laid bare and stomped on. And when you get back, everyone you see who knows you is just like, well, I bet you're glad to be back and get back to normal. And I was still rattled. And because God wasn't done revealing sin to me. It's like this situation became a launching pad for the Lord to reveal deeper areas of bitterness and resentment that I also didn't believe he could change. You know, I'd half-heartedly confess them and gone through the appropriate motions, but I was still holding on to this anger in my heart towards certain people who seemed like they would never change. And the Holy Spirit made my sins so evident. And then this unspeakable taste of his grace and joyful worship welled up in me. This is coming from a God that loves me and is fighting for me to be holy before him. And there's been this renewed joy that has returned and intimacy with the Lord in my prayers. Why did I resist this when God was after my joy? So this is why we must be willing to see our sinfulness, because it is our joy that God is after. And so I, I wanted to end today with a song, uh, My Sweet Friend Krista Eschbach went with us to Israel, and at the end of the day, she would put together songs that had to do with what we learned, and I just love this idea, so I'm stealing it, so I'd like for y'all to feel free to sit down if you want, close your eyes, listen, or to sing along. Thank you so much.
2: for the first time I had hope thank you Jesus for the blessing into glorious life you took my place laid inside my tomb of sin you were buried for three days but then you walked right out again and now dead His name, there to my heart was the blood applied, glory to
0: his name. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the blood applied. Thank you that it's washed us white and we do praise you. We worship you, celebrate you together as your people. Thank you. Would you receive glory and honor and praise as we leave this place, as as we walk into the next conversation or the next place that you have for us, God. Would you use us for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Courtney. That was a wonderful lesson and thank you guys. For your, for your attendance here, and we will see you next week. We will keep at it. We'll be in Romans 4 this week, so have a good week.